Hey, once again, brothers and sisters and friends and seekers and even agnostics and atheists and people from other religions that may be listening in, we welcome you. A couple of weeks ago or less, the Lord in his spirit into my heart spoke a very familiar couple of verses but it's something I really think that he is trying to bring home to me and to us, to you, that we need to pay attention to again. So let's all get into this together and ask the Spirit to reveal to us what it is we as individuals need to hear again and take to heart and be fervent about, especially in these last days, and seek to really listen but more importantly, to obey. See, we're called to be not only sowers, but to be sowers and reapers. And this verse tells us this. Matthew 9, 37 and 38 says, and you're familiar with this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In Acts 13, 44 through 46, it says this, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, even reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. And here's an interesting verse. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Very interesting verse. Since you thrust it aside or reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. In other words, if you don't want to listen to what we have to say that can save your souls for all of eternity, then Paul is saying, you are saying to yourself as the ones that are rejecting it and unwilling to listen and hear it, you find yourselves unworthy of this eternal life that Jesus wants to give you. Matthew 10, 14 and 15 says this, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now let's look at a few words. Harvest. It's uh, in the concordance. It's in the Greek section. 2326 is the number in the Strong's concordance. And it's therismos. And it means a reaping, a harvest, or a crop. It refers to all those things. 
So there is implicit in that word, in that definition, there's an act of reaping. There's a gathering of men into the kingdom of God that it's referring to. There's a time of reaping. There's a time of final judgment for the righteous, the kingdom of God, and for the wicked, destruction. There is a crop to be reaped. And there is a multitude of men to be taught how to obtain salvation, to learn of salvation. And the crops are ripe for the harvest. This other word, plentiful, in the Greek also, it's number 4183, and it's palus. And it means many, high in number, plenteous, multitudinous, which is a new word for me, but I could guess what it means, but it means very numerous or vast. It also means great in amount or extent, and it's emphasizing the quantity of something. Now the word worker or laborer, which also is in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, as are these other two words, is G2040 in your concordance, and it's pronounced ergates. And it's a field laborer. It's a, a laborer, someone that works in general, um, a worker for hire, a teacher, a toiler, a perpetrator, a doer, one who accomplishes something, carrying out and completing an inner God, godly, desire. So when it says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is implying and saying that not only do we need to sow in order to have a harvest, but then we need to also reap from that harvest. So the less we sow, the less we're going to reap. Now we know that there's going to be all kinds of seeds sown from the parable of the sower, and very few of those seeds are actually going to grow into 30, 60, or 100 fold. So the, more, the law of averages, <laughs> the more we sow, the more we should want to sow, to share the love of God, to share our love for others, we need to sow the word more and more and more and more so we can reach more people. And the word earnestly, of course, is uh, 1189a in the concordance in the Greek section, and it's deomai, and it means to want, to, um, to entreat, to ask, to beg, to beseech, to, um, to implore. It's got a sense of urgency about it, and it's so strong that it's something we can't just passively do. It's got to be active. Now concerning the harvest, John 10.16 says this, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So he's saying, all of you that are already following me, they're always already disciples of mine that already that have already given your lives to me. We need to add to that flock, and so we need to go out and and talk to those as well and bring them into the flock. So it'll be one flock and one shepherd. 
Matthew again, okay? Matthew 9.36, one verse earlier than what we mentioned in the beginning. Jesus said, when he saw the crowds, referring to Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That says a lot. Because they were followers of what, at this point, nothing except their own desires. They were sheep without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. And that goes back to when Jesus said, I need to go find these other ones that are not part of the flock yet. So there can be one flock and one shepherd. Now the word harassed that refers to these unsaved people is in the Greek, 4660. It means, to, it means flayed or troubled and annoyed and vexed and distressed. And that's why Jesus had compassion on them. And the word helpless is 4496 in the Greek, and it means thrown or cast off or tossed or sat down, set down or dispersed, set down in the sense that I'm not going to pick it up and carry it. I don't act as if I need it anymore. I'm just going to set it off to the side and dispersed. So you can see again why Jesus said, I've got to make one flock. I've got to go after them. And the word compassion, which is the whole reason that he's having compassion, is because they are harassed and distressed and helpless. It's uh, Greek. It's in the 4697 is the number, and it means to be moved in the inward parts, the heart, to have pity on, to stir the seat of one's affections. When you care enough about someone else and the fact that they need something that they don't have, especially salvation and eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, compassion is that you are so moved in your inner being, in your inner parts, in your heart, so as to have pity on them, and it stirs the very seat of your affections. It agitates it. It's, it won't let it be complacent or apathetic or passive. It makes you do something and want to do something. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 7, say this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master, God, of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers, there's that word again, for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idly in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you, or I will pay you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, and again at the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out, he went out, and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. This is speaking to both the laborers and those that need to hear the truth. 
See, we see our Lord and Savior Jesus repeatedly saying the words, went out, or you see the phrase, going out, or going out early in the morning, about the third hour, and again it says about the sixth hour, and again it says about the ninth hour, and again it says about the eleventh hour. He tells the laborers to go into the vineyard. He says people are standing in the marketplace and says they are idle. And he sends them into his vineyard. We, brothers and sisters, truthfully, many times, to at least some degree, are idle, right? We can and should do more in this area, especially in the last days. Souls in eternity are at stake, and we know this. We know people don't want to hear it. They might not listen to it. And Satan tells, tells us, oh, this is a rotten, evil world. Nobody's going to hear it. Well, why would Jesus, and, this, and that was my question, months and months ago, before the Lord even brought this back to my attention recently, I thought to myself, well, you know, we know the world is evil. We know everybody, nobody goes to church. Churches are closing their doors. They're low in attendance unless they're, you know, false churches. And they seem to have many, many people going there. Um, but, but why... Why would Jesus say the harvest is plentiful? <laughs> In other words, it, it, the, the harvest is ready. You just, it's ripe. We just need to go out. And Why would Jesus send us out to people that weren't going to listen? Now, a lot of people don't. Most don't. But he wouldn't say go out into the harvest. The harvest is ripe. Pray to God to send out more laborers into his harvest. Why would he stir our hearts to have compassion so we could have more people in the flock if there weren't any that were actually going to be harvested. They were not going to be ripened and picked from the crop. They are going to be picked from the crop. There are people in the harvest. There are people, are people that need to be harvested. That's why we need to go out into the Lord's harvest. We need to be laborers ourselves, not just pray for others, but pray for ourselves to have the strength and the love and the time and the determination and the will and the grace and all of that to go out and the boldness to go out and preach the word and reach souls one by one or many at a time. In John 9, 4, it says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. See, we've been given the Great Commission, right? Also, in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says four separate things. He says, go, therefore, that's number one, and make disciples, number two, of all nations. Three, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And four, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded them and commanded us. And he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Again, Luke 19.10 says that our Lord actively pursued the sheep that were not yet of his flock. He didn't stand idly by in the marketplace, as we do, unfortunately, sometimes. Sometimes we do, a lot of times, probably more often than not, um, myself included. 
he went into the vineyard himself, as we are to do. And he went back to the marketplace early in the morning and at the third and the sixth and the ninth and the eleventh hours to find laborers and to find souls. And that Luke 19 says that for the Son of Man came to seek, actively pursue, and save the lost. Now we're not seeking, are we? At least not as diligently as we should, especially if we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this is 50% of the two greatest commandments. Now we can't save ourselves. We, only Jesus can do that. But we can make disciples. We can do our part to teach them and in that way lead them to and prepare them for salvation. Now you may be thinking to yourself that you're not an evangelist or you're not suited to the task or you might be timid like Moses and Jeremiah and others were. But Jesus gave all of us the Great Commission and he will empower us, we know this, to do what we feel we are unable to do or even unwilling to do. Now I love when the Father reminds me of Matthew 10, 19 and 20. And he does it often. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father, God, speaking through you. I love that. Because whether we're ready for it, whether we're up to the task, or whether our minds are on something else when the opportunity presents itself, or we're timid or afraid, or Satan starts kicking in, or our flesh kicks in to try and find a way for us not to do something, it says, don't be anxious. In that hour, at that time, what you are to say will be given to you. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to think, what am I going to say? He said, no, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of God speaking through you. Hallelujah. And Paul reassures us, sharing what the Lord told him. It's in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. You remember this too. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. He says, the power of Christ rests upon me, and that as a result, when he is weak, he's also made strong through Jesus. And further, our Redeemer emphasizes the importance of seeking the lost by sharing this common practice. He says in Matthew eighteen twelve. he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, or potential sheep, and one of them has gone astray, or is not yet even part of the fold, as we found out earlier, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? So you can have 99 and one gone, and you go look for the one, because the 99 are solid. They're there. They're in for it. They're committed. They're mature. But the one is losing it. He's going astray. He's backsliding. Leave those, go after the one. But it also refers to the one that's lost, that needs to be sought. Seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came to seek and save. And we're to seek after them too, so they can be saved. So if he leaves one that's astray, 
excuse me, leaves the 99 to go after the one, how much more so to those who have not yet heard the good news at all? And we can't, by our lack of interest or our lack of effort or our disobedience, judge them as unworthy of eternal life, as Paul said earlier. As he said, they judge themselves. We, they can't say to themselves, I'm unworthy of eternal life, which is really what they're saying if they're rejecting the word. But we can't do that either by saying, I'm too lazy to go after him, or I've got other things more important to do. I heard a message recently on another topic, but when, um, when, uh, when there are two things to make a choice about, we implicitly choose the one of greater value. And so if we reject the word and we love our sin, then we're saying the word and the truth and eternal life has less value or no value as compared to my sin, which I still love. And we're saying, if we don't go after the lost, we're saying our comfort and our own salvation and our own assurance of hope and peace and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is our, 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 all of those things I just listed, our thoughts on what we have right now is more important and have more value than those who don't have it. And if we really think that way by our actions or whatever, then that's wrong. We need to, we need to do that. We need to go after them. Jesus hunted us down and we need to, we need to go seek them too. We can't judge them as unworthy of eternal life. And we are not the judge anyway. Jesus is. And he's the one giving us all these verses, examples, and commands. And what does he say to us in uh, John 14, 15? He says, plainly and clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't say which ones or these these, these, this commandment as compared to that commandment is better or worse of less value of more value. He says, you will keep my commandments, plural, all of them. Now, God often calls us to do what we are uncomfortable with and fearful of. Amen? He once even emphasized this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 28. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that seem to be of nothing, to bring to nothing things that are. Consider Moses and Jonah and Gideon and David and Jeremiah and a whole bunch of others, okay? They fit perfectly into this category, just like we do. And the Bible even goes so far as to say in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20, goes so far as to call us messengers of reconciliation. In other words, it's our duty to be messengers to help reconcile people to God. And it says we're to be ambassadors of Christ. Wow. 
Another verse the Lord reminds me of all the time when I'm fearful or doubting, and it speaks to the underlying motive of my heart, and probably yours too. The context is not speaking, is speaking of Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. Jesus is, the message is speaking of another issue specifically, but the principle or the divine law behind it or the message that's underlying it is exactly the same. It's in 1 John 4.18. And you've heard this too. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This is a great truth, brothers and sisters. God uses it with me all the time and to us today to tell us that our fears and the awareness of our inadequacies and shortcomings are not to be the motivations of our hearts that drive us to be obedient or not to be obedient or to make certain decisions and not make other decisions. They don't give us the sound mind and the self-control and the good judgment that we need to act or speak. The Lord tells me that I shouldn't act when I'm fearful. I should listen to and trust him. And when the truth of his word speaks to me and the motivation of my heart is love, not fear, then love casts out the fear. The motivation in my heart becomes love, not fear. And so the fear of my heart is cast out where it should be and love overtakes it. And that allows me to care enough and have compassion for those that are lost and seek out those which are lost and not part of the fold and help bring them in and make disciples of them and baptize them in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit so they can be like us and have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. It drives it away. It replaces it. Then, as I said a minute ago, I can act or speak because the reason, the intent of my heart is love, which is from God, rather than fear, which is of self and or Satan for sure. The enemy, and you know this, the enemy uses fear to keep us from doing many things. God uses love to push us and to free us and to enable us to do his perfect will, right? So it's up to us, though, and our will to listen to our creator, not to listen to our fearful hearts or the fear that's coming from the enemy. Now, I've noticed also often that our enemy knows us pretty well based on what we reveal to him in our speech and our actions and our inactions. He knows us pretty well along with the commonalities of the human race. And because he does, he has a, a toolbox or a list of strategies or a bag full of ready-to-go excuses to offer us, to prompt us, to lure us into disobedience. Have you ever thought about that? If he uses one, and you probably won't even know it's him acting upon your mind, you or I will often see it as our own thoughts. But if he uses one of these excuses and I reject it, there's, there's another right behind it ready to go. If I reject that, 
still determined to obey the Lord, there's yet another one. Until his urgings eventually maybe cave or acquiesce because of the combination of rationale and persistence and ultimately my lack of resolution. Now, I don't want to get off track, so I won't read it here, but to illustrate the point perfectly, please, please take the time to read the short historical account of 1 Kings 13, verses 1 through 34. It sounds long, but it's not. It's less than a five-minute read. 1 Kings 13, 1 through 34. 1 Kings 13, 1 through 34. It's concerning the man of God, a true prophet, and a lying old man, a false prophet. You'll see exactly what I'm saying, but you need to read it. It talks about the persistence and good motivations and being, be, being obedient at the beginning and eventually caving and being disobedient. Now, brothers and sisters, we cannot let 1 Kings 13, 1 through 34 happen to us myself included. And if it has happened already, we can't let it go on anymore. The Lord God, Jesus Christ, has said to us, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, us, into his harvest. Not somebody else, but us too. Don't just pray, send out somebody else. It's, send me. Send me. Give me the motivation. Give me the love, not the fear. Give me the obedience. Give me the grace. Give me the will. Give me the desire. Give me the power. Give me the boldness. Give me the time. Anything. Give me the words, because you're the one speaking, not me. Get me to go into the harvest. Now, the Father's already spoken to me about this, generally, a few months ago while driving to work. But also specifically... There is an off-ramp I take on the way home from work every day. It's exit 134. I remember this, exit 134. And there are very often homeless, lost individuals at the base of the off-ramp on the side of the road holding a cardboard sign wanting an alm, like those in Jesus' day. When the light's red and I'm close enough and the Lord prompts me, I'll get their attention and help them. I always, thanks to the Holy Spirit, tell them that they need to seek Jesus and Him first and put Him first. If I have time before the light turns green, I will ask them their name so I can remember them and add them to my prayer list, which is getting better. The Lord's helping me with that. And God's even pushed me to even put this, put this prayer list together rather than just having something on my mind every once in a while. And his love and his grace have enabled me to develop this habit. And it's getting better. And it's growing. One man in particular at that off-ramp was named Rudy. Now, since my wife will be out of the town visiting her family for Christmas, in fact, she just did this yesterday, the Lord has directed me to go out, seek the lost, Rudy in particular, if I can find him, Take him to lunch or dinner, listen to his story, and speak God's truth into his heart and love into his life. Just like on Christmas Day. Now, those are my personal instructions from the Lord. Now, I am simple, I am foolish, 
I am not of noble birth, but God can and will use me for his plans and purposes to seek and save the lost, and he will do it for you too, because we all fit into that category. And the devil tries to make me fear and doubt that he won't be there, but I know that since God is sending me, he'll make sure I can find Rudy. The devil even tried to work through my life, my wife because of her concern for me. I said with the Lord's resolve that I wasn't going to disobey the clear instructions that I heard from God, the command of the Lord. And Jesus has driven away and cast off the fear and replaced it with love, thank the Lord. And I reminded my wife that the Lord will protect me from evil, Psalm 91. And that I'm doing this now while she's away that so that no possible harm or danger would come to her. I can go off and do it by myself. And I would never put her in that position unless she was ready for it and wanted to do it. And she's a woman of God and of great faith. But it almost reminded me of the exchange between Peter and, and our Lord. You remember in Matthew 16, verses 22 and 23, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now listen to this. This is key. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, when we, when we have our minds set on the things of God, we're motivated, motivated by love, and we, and we obey. But when we're motivated by the things of man, and of the devil, we experience fear and we disobey. Do you see that? That's an excellent thing the Lord taught me. I mean, I've, I've heard this verse before, but I never really came, a, came away with that particular understanding. Jesus is saying, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, though you think you're having compassion on me, because Jesus was telling him, I'm about to go and die and suffer for your sins. And Peter said, no, far be it from you. You're never going to die. And he said, get behind me, Satan. That's because he knew Satan was putting fear into his heart. And he said, you're not setting your mind, Peter, on the things of God, or you wouldn't have fear in your heart, but on the things of man. If you had the things of God on your mind, you would be motivated by love and you'd do it. But since you're motivated by fear, that's a thing of man, and that's what's keeping you from doing it. Now, I love my wife, and I appreciate her concern for me, but it's fear that she was acting out of. The things of man are fearful. The things of God are based in and motivated by and filled with love. And perfect love, as that verse says, casts out or drives out or replaces fear. Oh, that's awesome. Hallelujah. That's a sermon right there. So we're to do what the Lord says, right? Whenever and however he says it. Since we love him, we'll keep his commandments. We are doers, not just hearers of his word. We are to leave the 99 and go after the one. We are to go and seek and save the lost. We are to go make disciples and baptize them. We are to love God and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And since we are saved, they must be saved. We must work what is, while it is still day. We must be laborers in the Lord's harvest. We must walk in the same way in which he walked. We are indebted to him. We are obligated to him. He has ransomed us with his, with his blood and his absolute ownership rights over us. And since he now lives in our hearts, we are compelled by his love for us 
and his love for the lost and our gratitude and love for him to proclaim his good news to all. Amen.